Hello! Today we're going to be starting a new series going through the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is probably one of the most important books in the Old Testament because it explains how the Hebrew nation came into being. It's essential that every Christian understands the story of Exodus. It's of paramount importance. It's the second book of the Bible, and it's really the one book in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Bible, that, that contains the heart of the story, as it were. In the book of Exodus, we learn how a rather large family, the sons of a man named Israel or Jacob, how they go and settle in the land of Egypt. We learn how that community then grows and until they become a racial minority in, in Egypt, they, they become uh, a threat or are considered a threat to the Egyptians. And after a period of time, they're enslaved. And they actually are enslaved for 400 years, which of course is a long, long time. Many generations would have known nothing but slavery. And then in the book of Exodus, we also see how God raises up a deliverer, a man named Moses who leads the Israelites out of their oppression, out of their slavery and into the, the wilderness and then the promised land. So Exodus is an exciting book. It's, it's in the book of Exodus that we learn God's name. It's here in the book of Exodus that we see the God of Israel triumphing over the gods of Egypt. And in the ten plagues, each one of those plagues is really a showdown between the God of Israel and a God of Egypt. It's in the book of Exodus that the Passover is first instituted and, and, and celebrated. It's, it's here in the book of Exodus that the Egyptian army is drowned as they pursue God's people. And it's here in the book of Exodus that the Ten Commandments are given. So it is a remarkable book. And I'm so glad that as a church, we're going to be working our way through the book of Exodus. The, the name of the book Exodus simply comes from the Greek word Exodus, which means to exit. So the book of Exodus is about exiting Egypt, their departure. And in the sermon today, I'm going to be covering the first two chapters of the book of Exodus. So let's start in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. You will remember that the previous book of the Bible, Genesis, describes how Joseph found his way to Egypt. 
He was the favorite son of this man named Jacob. But his brothers hated him and sold him to some slave traders. And then terrible things happened to Joseph. He was falsely accused of many things. He was imprisoned. He was betrayed. And he was forgotten. But eventually God raises up Joseph to become the prime minister in Egypt. And he saves the people from the famine. Later in in Genesis, in chapter 50, Joseph says these amazing words to his brothers after he's been reconciled to them. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And life was very good in Egypt for Joseph. And eventually, because of the famine, his whole family moved from Canaan into Egypt and joined him. But as time goes by, things change. And they don't always change for the better. Verse 6 says this, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. And here comes that change. Verse 8, Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now begins this period of oppression and enslavement for Israel. It was after this new Pharaoh came to power, someone that didn't love and know Joseph. The story goes on. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. What we are about to read in the next few verses is cruel indeed. A law is passed decreeing that male babies must be murdered. Verse 15, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shephira and Pua, when you help the Hebrew woman in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Male babies were, were seen as a threat because they could grow up to become freedom fighters. 
But this is also a demonically inspired decree. Remember at the time of Jesus' birth, King Herod decreed a similar thing, that all the babies in a region under the age of two should be, should be put to death. That was Satan trying to kill the Messiah, Jesus. This is a similar thing here happening in the spirit realm. Satan is inspiring this infanticide to, to hopefully kill Moses. But whatever the motive, demonic or fear-based, it's a horrible decree. Can you imagine the trauma that young expectant Hebrew families must have been feeling? This is a most unjust law. If it's a boy, kill him. Now we all know about unjust laws. What are we to do when the powers that be pass laws that we know and understand to be contrary to God's will and unjust? South Africa has a terrible history of unjust laws. Think of some of the laws established by the apartheid government. The Population Registration Act, forcing people to be classified by their race. Think of the Separate Amenities Act. Think of the Pass Laws. Think of the Group Areas Act that resulted in forced removals and tragic loss for so many people. Think of the Immorality Act that in itself was immoral, yet it purported to be this righteous thing. The Immorality Act that forbid, forbade love and marriage between people of different races. These were all unjust laws. Of course, South Africa is not the only nation in the world to have had unjust laws. Many nations have unjust laws, and many still do. By an unjust law, I mean something that is either intrinsically unfair or contrary to God's law. Apartheid was both. And it's not just pharaohs and dictators who pass unjust laws. Democratic countries also have unjust laws and ungodly laws. Just because something is the law doesn't mean it is right. For example, most liberal democracies today legally protect the right to kill babies in the womb. It's legal to do it, but it doesn't make it right. Here in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 1, we read about infanticide. It's an unjust law. After a baby was born, it would be inspected for its sex and then killed if it was male. What we read next is, is heartwarming. The midwives, however, feared God 
and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Ha ha. Perhaps this is the first case of civil disobedience. There are times when we have to take note of what the law of the land is or what the United Nations is saying or whoever and say, but I have to obey God's law. There are actually quite a few examples of civil disobedience in the Bible, of God's people refusing to obey laws that are contrary to God's laws. Think of the time where King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon made that huge statue of himself and passed a decree that when the music plays, everybody is to stop what they're doing and bow down to his statue. And Daniel and his friends refused to do this. And we read in Daniel 3 and verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is it true that you won't worship me? And there's this wonderful reply. We don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're saying, we're going to trust God to see us through this, but we're not going to obey your laws. And we're willing to pay the ultimate price if need be. I think of the apostles preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 4 and 5. Peter and John are preaching and their message is, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. They're preaching the, the exclusivity of, of the Christian gospel, that there's no other way to be saved. And they're rebuked by the Sanhedrin, which was the, the national government body, call it local government, provincial government. Peter and, and they get commanded not to speak or teach that message. And their reply is, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. There's a similar showdown in Acts chapter 5. Again, Peter and John and the apostles are preaching the gospel and the Jewish Sanhedrin are going nuts and they say, you must stop this. We've told you to stop it. And Peter's reply is, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather 
than men. Back to the midwives. Here's how this story ends. Exodus 1.20. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God and because they chose to obey God's laws and not the Pharaoh's rules, he gave them families of their own. But this caused Pharaoh to just double down with his unjust laws and decrees. Verse 22, then Pharaoh gave this order to all. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Throughout the history of the world, Governments and emperors have passed laws that are unjust and ungodly and contrary to God's laws. And we would be naive to think that that's never going to happen again. I believe that in our lifetime, in order for us to be true to the gospel and God's word, we will have to make difficult decisions like these midwives did. And the choice will be, are we going to obey man's laws or God's? Because the time will come when they will be in conflict. Here's another example. Today, free speech is under threat in many places around the world, including some of the most liberal and developed Western democracies. I think it's not beyond the pale to think that in the near future, parts of the Bible may be declared to be hate speech and banned. I think that preaching that Jesus is the only way to salvation will be deemed offensive and perhaps punishable by a fine and maybe later by a stay in a re-education camp. Already, there was the, the story recently of a doctor in our country who was threatened with having his right to practice medicine withdrawn for describing a baby as a living person. What about the teacher in the classroom who, who is going to, by law, have to teach sexual values in keeping with the South African constitution, yet contrary to God's laws? What about the psychotherapist that has to affirm the behavior that he or she knows is contrary to God's will? What about ministers being instructed to, to tone down sermons and to stay off certain topics? What about the pressure on parents to no longer be able to use the techniques of discipline that have been used for thousands and thousands of years? Yes, we have freedom of religion in South Africa, but we can't sit on our laurels because even those freedoms can be declared less important than other people's freedom and rights not to be offended. Challenges are heading our way, and we would do well to remember the story of the midwives in Exodus chapter 1. Jesus warns us 
that in the last days, things are not going to be easy for Christians. In John chapter 15, it's these words of Jesus are recorded. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In John 16, it's recorded Jesus saying, and this is a graphic warning, Anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Jesus is describing the opposition that Christians are going to experience in this world. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Narcissistic, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. There's a lot of talk these days about the mark of the beast whose number is 666. Whatever that eventually turns out to be, the big idea is that the true followers of Jesus are going to be shunned by this world. We're going to be forced out of mainstream society. We will be excluded by the world. And it will be because we're choosing to obey God rather than men. But we see here, too, that God rewards necessary civil obedience. Exodus 1 and verse 20, God was kind to the midwives. And because they feared God, he gave them families of their own. Let's move now to chapter 2, which describes the birth of Moses. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Let's try and put ourselves in this family's sandals. They've already disobeyed the law. They were legally obligated to have killed their baby boy. They have defied the state. They have chosen to obey God and not man. And things are becoming increasingly difficult for them. Maybe the baby is crying a lot and drawing attention to itself. 
Maybe there's a jealous neighbor who's perhaps had to kill their child and is now envious that Moses' parents haven't done the same and they're living with regret. We don't know what pushed Moses' family to do this, but it is a drastic action to take a three-month-old baby and to, to put it in a basket and to hide it in the, the, the banks of the Nile. Think of all the snakes and crocodiles that would have been around. How could this family do such a thing? I believe it's because they trusted in God. They believed in the providence of God, in the power of God. And in the providence of God, baby Moses is discovered by none other than Pharaoh's daughter. Perhaps she'd gone for an extra long walk that day. Verse 5, Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, good idea, go, she answered. This has got to be the best part of the story coming up now. Oh, the irony of this. The girl, Moses' older sister, went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. How amazing is this? Now Moses is adopted as Pharaoh's grandchild. And yet his own mother, who just days ago was fearing for her own life, is now being paid to look after Moses. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Isn't it amazing how God can take a desperate situation, a situation where great evil is being perpetrated, and bring something fantastic out of it. Let's wind the clock forward 40 years. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Moses is a, a dual citizen, as it were, and he has a, a complex identity. He obviously knows that he's a Hebrew. He would have looked like a Hebrew. His mother would have also explained to him about God, about his people, his history, and his heritage. So Moses would have known in his heart of hearts 
that he is a Hebrew through and through, though he lives like an Egyptian and is known as the grandson of the Pharaoh. As an Egyptian, he was part of the royal family. He was well-educated. He had access to the royal courts. He's an insider. He's immensely privileged. He's part of a family that's developed its wealth through the exploitation of others. And now on this particular day, he sees the pain and suffering of a Hebrew man. And I don't know what was special about this particular day, but something happened in Moses. He reaches a point in his own life where he can no longer just watch what's going on. Now he's got to do something. He's compelled to act. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his people were. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Maybe he thinks to himself, that could have been me. But this righteous indignation rises up within Moses. And according to verse 12, glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. We can think long and hard about this action, whether it was justifiable or not. Was it the right thing to have done, to kill a man for oppressing another? Sometimes people land up doing the wrong thing, but for the right motive. Perhaps that's what's going on here. Moses' revulsion towards injustice, that was a good and godly feeling. But how he gave expression to that feeling was, in my view, wrong. I think we see a lot of the same thing happening today. People have the right motives. Their cause is just. Their feelings are legitimate. But sometimes people express those feelings in ways that are counterproductive. And in ways that are sometimes morally wrong. Life is complex. And issues are usually never as clear cut as people on both sides of a debate make them out to be. Socio-political problems are deeply complex. And killing or hurting a person here or there is no way to resolve a complex and systemic problem. Of course, Moses thinks he's got away with his act of sedition. He probably felt quite invigorated when he got home that night. He just killed a person with his bare hands. I wonder if he went to bed feeling quite smug, maybe quite self-righteous, even pleased with what he had done that day. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? 
The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Well, that's a shocker. Moses didn't see that coming. Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Now Moses lives for 40 long years in the desert. He marries a woman named Zipporah. And they have a son, Gershom. And they name him that because of this reason. I have become an alien in a foreign land. I wonder what could have been if Moses had channeled his passion for justice in a wiser way. I wonder if the exile out of slavery for, for, for a million people would not have happened maybe 40 years earlier if Moses had better controlled his temper. We just won't know. But certainly that rash act caused Moses to become an exile and perhaps it did delay his, his eventual ministry of delivering God's people from slavery. But God has a plan. And God uses this time of Moses living in the desert to shape his character until he becomes a man that can't even speak properly with a stutter. Who knows what... What he went through in his life, living in that desert. But it must have been tough compared to his life in the courts of Pharaoh. Can you imagine the, the regrets that Moses lived with for 40 years? If only I'd not gone out that day. If only that man had not beaten that man. If only I'd not committed murder. If only nobody had seen me do it. I wonder how much Moses missed his families. I wonder how much he missed the, the enjoyment of living in Pharaoh's palace. And now let me close with the final verses of Exodus chapter 2. They're very significant and they're the verses that the series is named after. Chapter 2 and verse 23. This is now the people back in Egypt as slaves, not Moses in the desert living a quiet life. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. 
So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Isn't it, ama- isn't it amazing that we, we serve a God who hears our groans, who hears our prayers, and he looks upon us and he is concerned about us. And so these verses lead into the rest of the story of Exodus. God seeing the suffering of his people and determining to bring them out of suffering and into a land of milk and honey, of prosperity and of joy. Let's pray together. Lord, we've covered so much in just these two chapters. We've We've considered the pressure that comes upon people when unjust laws are passed in a nation. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide us, that when we face laws that are unjust or contrary to your will, that you would show us how to conduct ourselves as good citizens and as More importantly, good Christians. We pray, Lord, that when the tests come, that we would stand, Lord. That like the apostles, we too would make that choice. Judge for yourselves. Is it not right that we obey God and not man? And Lord, we've seen the pressures on a young family trying to raise their children in an ungodly environment where Satan and the powers of the world are out to destroy their children. And we pray for the parents of our church family. Give them wisdom as they seek to preserve and protect their children. We trust in your providence, Lord, to keep them. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful as parents in the values that we teach. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God who sees and the God who is concerned. And we pray that you would see us all today, Lord. And we thank you that you look upon us and you love us and you have a wonderful plan for our lives. We entrust ourselves to you, Lord. Just as Moses' parents entrusted that little baby to you, so we entrust ourselves to you, Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.